Going through this book, the book of Acts, we've been saying it's a book about the beginnings of the church of Jesus Christ. And um, one of the, the key verses to understanding the book as a whole and how it's structured is found in chapter 1, verse 8, where just before Jesus ascends into heaven, he gives his apostles a mission. And he says this to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So as we read, as we've been studying through the book of Acts, we're going to see the gospel message that the apostles have spread out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then all the way to the ends of the earth. It's like concentric circles as the gospel uh, goes further and further afield. And so far in our studies, we're still in Jerusalem, um, but things have been going well for the church and for the apostles' mission. Uh, The Holy Spirit has been given to all the believers. He is changing their lives. The, The church is formed. It is strong. It's united. But something is about to happen in today's chapter that has not yet happened in the book of Acts. And it will be a a mark that will stick with the church constantly. For the first time, and by no means for the last, the church of Jesus is about to undergo opposition for proclaiming the gospel. So let's read it, Acts chapter 4. Let's Just to get a bit of context here, Peter and John, um, the apostles of Jesus, they have miraculously healed uh, a beggar who was lame from birth. And Peter used this as an opportunity uh, to preach to a large crowd of people that had gathered around about the gospel. And then this is what happens. Luke writes this, Acts chapter 4, verse 1. And as they, that's Peter and John, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, By him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. 
So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather, rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all of them were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their, voice, their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Well, let's pray together before we look at God's words. Father, thank you that you're a God who speaks to us. You're not silent. You're a God who has made himself known. You're a God uh, in whose voice this very morning, as we look at your word, we will hear your voice. And Lord, we thank you for that wonderful gift. So help us, Father, to listen to what you have to teach us. Father, I pray that you would challenge those of us who are feeling um, comforted and you would comfort those of us who are feeling challenged. May your word pierce our hearts. May it change us and may it sanctify us so that we can be like the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, on the back of your service sheet is a very simple outline uh, to the passage that we are going to be looking at. I've personally found um, this passage in, in Acts 4 to be a, a tremendously challenging passage. But we must remember Luke's purpose in writing this for us. Luke writes this because he wants to encourage us. He he wants to encourage us that Jesus' promise that the gospel will go out to the ends of the earth will happen and it will continue despite the fact that it faces opposition. And so how do we see the gospel progressing then in this difficult time when it is faced with this opposition? There's two very simple points there. It progresses firstly through a bold proclamation, through a proclamation of boldness. And secondly, it progresses through a prayer for boldness. So through a proclamation of boldness and through a prayer for boldness, this gospel will continue to expand. Firstly then, we see it progressing through a proclamation of boldness in verse 1 to 22 of the passage. Now, Peter and John, they've just been preaching. This man's been healed. And after they've preached, they're arrested by the chief priests and the Sadducees. Now, these guys are the political and religious elite of Jerusalem at this time. This is the the high authority figures. And what's striking is that as they are being arrested, Luke tells us 5,000 men 
come to follow Jesus. Now, I said in the first service, I don't know why um, Luke just records the men. And when you say a statement like that in a church service, it's always a mistake because people will come up to you afterwards and tell you why. Uh, And so apparently that was how they took a record of numbers uh, in that time. They just used to record the men. So Luke tells us 5,000 men have responded to the gospel. It's incredible. It would be as if uh, we had this place packed to, to the brim with people. And then after the sermon, the police came in through the back door, arrested me and dragged me out. And everyone here thought, oh, hey, I want to get some of that. That looks great. And yet that is what is happening here in Acts chapter 4. And Luke from the onset is showing us that the gospel is going to progress, that the message of the gospel will not be hindered by opposition. But as Peter and John are taken away for the first time as they are arrested, I wonder what thoughts were going around their head as they sat in their cells that night for the sake of the gospel. What were they thinking? Maybe they were thinking about what Luke tells us in his first volume in his gospel. Luke says that Jesus said to his apostles this in Luke twenty-one twelve: people will take you They will lay their hands on you. They will persecute you. They will deliver you up to the synagogues and the prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. So they were probably thinking about those words that Jesus spoke to them. They knew it. Jesus had them ready. This is what was going to be part of their mission as apostles. This is what they would have to face. But do you know what? I bet they would have been absolutely terrified as they sat in those cells. Scared. This is not just a random group of haters. This is the ruling body of Jerusalem. This is the same, this is the very same group of people that held the trial of Jesus and condemned Jesus, their master, to execution by crucifixion. And as these two simple fishermen are summoned before (coughs) the giants of the political and the religious establishment, it would have been terrifying It would have been absolutely terrifying. So what have they done that has led them to this point? Well, they're there not because they healed a man. (coughs) It's not because they're causing any sort of political trouble or stirring up strife. The reason they are there is because they are proclaiming the name of Jesus. Do you notice that as you see it in the passage? Um, (coughs) Look at verse 2 there while I go and grab some water. Um, (laughs) In verse 2, It says that the Sadducees and the high priests were annoyed because they were teaching people and proclaiming in Jesus. And then when they ask Peter, "Why? what name are you doing this in? Peter tells them, verse 10, that the power of this came from Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It was done in the name of Jesus. And when the council realizes that they can't actually prosecute Peter and John because, well, they've not actually done anything wrong. And the man that they have healed is standing right next to them. They do what all good religious bureaucracies do. They get together, they form a committee, a motion is passed that they can let them go, uh, seconded by you know some other senior Sadducee. Let them go as long as, in verse 17, they speak to no one about this name. They can go as long as they do not talk about the name of Jesus. It is the name of 
Jesus that is offending this council. It's the fact that they are doing all this in the name of Jesus. It is the root cause of this first opposition to the church. And it's the name of Jesus that is the fundamental root cause of all opposition to those who faithfully proclaim him. Remember, Jesus said to his disciples, look, if the world hates you, remember that first of all, it hated me. When you follow a rejected savior, rejection is to be expected. Our brothers and sisters who are part of the church in Iraq just now or uh, in Syria are facing persecution, not because they're, they're bad or because they're causing trouble. They're facing persecution because they simply confess the name of Jesus. You could be the nicest, most peaceable person ever, but if you talk about Jesus, you will face opposition. <coughs> I remember um, chatting to a minister in Dundee who appeared on a, the TV show The Secret Millionaire that was on Channel 4. Um, and the premise of that show was that there would be a millionaire who would go around base um, different charities uh, covertly and then at the end of the show he or she would give money to some of the charities and he was on it because his church did uh, work with food banks in Dundee and um, he he was saying that in, she, the lady who was on it did actually give them money but he was saying that he was really annoyed with the tv show when channel 4 aired it because they'd cut out 90 percent of what he said because he had said time and time again that the reason they were doing that was because of Jesus. The reason they were wanting to help the poor was because of Jesus. But Channel 4 couldn't have the name of Jesus mentioned, so they cut out a lot of what he said. Oh, they're quite happy to have the good deeds, the kindness. That's, that's okay, but it cannot be done in the name of Jesus. What we see here is the council saying, well, okay, the person healed, that's fine, but it cannot be done in the name of Jesus. It's the name of Jesus that has to be silenced. That, that's the opposition here. But do you notice the irony in verse 14? There's a lot of irony in this passage. Those who ordered the apostles to be silenced are themselves silenced. The evidence is irrefutable, but they are so hard-hearted that even in the face of irrefutable evidence, they will not believe because they hate the name of Jesus. They are the ones that are silenced. And those humble fishermen standing on trial against the religious bigwigs, far from being silent, end up boldly proclaiming the gospel. Look at what Peter says in his defense at this trial. Uh, now bear in mind, Peter's standing before people who executed Jesus. If this was a modern day trial, you can imagine Peter's lawyer leaning over to him and saying, right, you've got to be careful what you say here. But Peter's not got a lawyer. And look at what he says in verse 8. Filled with the Holy Spirit, he says this to them. Rulers of the people and the elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You see, Peter boldly ascertains this is all about Jesus. This man being healed is all about Jesus. In fact, Peter, in his defense, he gives a three-point sermon. First point, 
It was the power of Jesus' name that healed this man. Second point, this is the same Jesus that you have rejected, that you have killed. Third point in the key application, the only way you can ever be saved is through his name. So they're worried about Peter and John because they're talking about Jesus and doing stuff in his name. And Peter's response is to give them a three-point sermon on how they need to be saved in Jesus' name. When the enraged council does order Peter and John to be silent. Look at what they say in verse 19. I just think, this is amazing. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. God's opponents have tried to silence the gospel and it's resulted in God's apostles proclaiming the gospel. This is how the gospel progressed despite opposition back then at the time of the early church through bold proclamation. And that is still how the gospel progresses today. If we are willing to talk about Jesus, we will face opposition. And that has to be emphasized because we have done something to the church today in modern Western society that those people in the early church would have found simply unthinkable. We have molded Christianity into this comfortable middle-class religion. The Bible's clear. There's, there's no such thing as comfortable Christianity. The call to follow Jesus is a call to radical sacrifice. And it's difficult. It's difficult to talk about Jesus. You try going into your workplace tomorrow or, or going into uh, university and saying to your course mates or to your colleagues or to your family members who don't know Jesus, you try saying to them that there is no other name by which you can be saved than the name of Jesus. You'll face opposition for that. It's hard. You don't want to be seen as being, as being stupid or, or narrow-minded or, or even bigoted no matter how graciously it's put across. But it's so important that we do because it's true. This world needs Jesus. We have something in our hands that is infinitely more precious than a cure for cancer. And I do not use the word infinitely lightly. And I know that for some of you here, you wouldn't say you're a follower of Jesus. And please hear this plea from Peter as a plea to you. Peter doesn't impose it. He leaves it out there. But this is his plea to you. You need to be saved. You need to be reconciled back to God. And that can only come through trusting in Jesus. That is the only way. There is nothing else that will work. No matter how good or how moral you may be or how close to God you may feel, if you don't have Jesus, you cannot be saved. You are not promised tomorrow, and it's only through Jesus that salvation's possible. And if we as Christians really, really do believe that that's true, then we have to say what the apostle said in verse 19. We cannot but speak of this Jesus. This is so important. The truth of this is far too important to kill, especially for the sake of our own reputation. That's why as a church, we're, that's why we're doing these evangelistic events. We're doing this evangelism training, all these different events, because we want people to be saved. We want people to respond to the name of Jesus. That's what the gospel is. It's salvation. We want people to respond to the real Jesus. 
Do you notice something in Peter's um, three-point sermon? Do you notice how he just does not dress up his message at all? I mean, this he's saying to these guys who, who have the power to kill him, he's saying, you are the ones who killed this Jesus. You are the ones who rejected him. You are the ones who are ignoring God. You who think you're the religious bigwigs. It would have been offensive. And sometimes with all graciousness, with all humility, with all kindness, we do have to be willing to be offensive when we talk about Jesus. Can't cave into the pressure of trying to, trying to remold Jesus into something that is more palatable for modern ears. Let's talk about the real Jesus. Jesus doesn't need us to make him look good. He is good. People may oppose it. People will oppose it. But I think what Luke's trying to show us here is that opposition is not something to be feared, nor is it necessarily a sign of failure. If anything, it's normal. Our temptation, though, is to is to look at Peter and John and think, well, they're an exception. I mean, these guys are apostles. They spent three years physically with Jesus, spending time with him, being taught by him. They have a unique authority, and that's definitely true. The apostles did have a unique authority. They could do stuff that we couldn't do. But again, I think Luke's trying to show us that that with regards to proclaiming the gospel, the apostles are no more different to you and I. Look at verse 13. That's the thing that actually astonishes the people on this religious council. These men are just ordinary, unschooled, uneducated men. They're just fishermen. They've not read uh, volumes of books on how to do apologetics. To be honest, they might not even be able to read. Certainly Peter might not be. They're just fishermen. They've not had the years at Bible college that, um, ironically, the council of religious leaders that are condemning them have had. See, we can just as effectively proclaim that same gospel. Whether you're a theological egghead or, or whether you're someone who just became a Christian five minutes ago, because the thing that we need to give us boldness to talk about Jesus is the thing that every follower of Jesus has. And it's the Holy Spirit. See that in verse 8? Peter is filled with the Spirit. That's how he can speak boldly. It's not because he's more courageous than you or I. We know if you've read the Gospels, you know what Peter's like. You know that he's caved under pressure. It's not because he's more courageous. We are on the same level. We have the same Spirit and we, are all, we have all we need to boldly proclaim Jesus. And when the book of Acts talks about people being filled with the Spirit, the outworking of that is seen not in what they feel, but in what they say. The Spirit's not some ethereal force that passes through people. It's God himself giving us the ability to speak about the gospel. The challenge of this is for us to to forsake this, this comfortable Christianity so that we can proclaim Jesus to people who may oppose it. But the comfort and the encouragement is that some people will respond. In this case, it was 5,000 that responded to this gospel message. 5,000 that were saved. The gospel will progress to the ends of the earth as Jesus has promised. 
And the question then is, okay, if we, if, okay, if we have God's Spirit, if that's what we need, that's all we need to boldly proclaim Jesus, then why do we so often fail to do it with boldness? Why do we, we cave into the pressure? Well, I think this is where our second point comes in, a prayer for boldness. There's a proclamation of boldness. Secondly, a prayer for boldness. When the church hears of this, when Peter and John go back to the church, tell them about this newfound opposition, look at what their reaction is. This is what they do, verse 24. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. The church's first reaction to this is prayer. They don't strategize a new way of evangelism that's more covert, that could go under the radar. They don't get together and form a legal committee to sue the Sanhedrin for mistreatment. They get on their knees and they pray to God. That's their first port of call. And look look at the substance of this prayer. This is a prayer that praises God for his sovereign control over everything. They begin by acknowledging who it is they're praying to, that this is the God who created the heavens and the earth. This is not some distant person. This is the God who sustains, who controls all things. And then in verse 25, they pray back to God a truth from the Bible. And they're quoting there from, uh, from the Old Testament, from Psalm 2, which is a psalm all about how God's anointed one, the other term for that is God's Christ, how he will be rejected by the kings of the earth. It's a psalm that's written a thousand years before Jesus, and yet it's all about Jesus. Jesus' rejection from Herod, from from Pontius Pilate, from the Gentiles, and and from the Jews was a fulfillment of this psalm. When Jesus was crucified, it wasn't something random that caught God off guard. This was something that he had decreed would happen long ago. Rejection opposition are not out with God's plan, but they're part of it. He is sovereign. He's in control. And you see how that would be a great comfort to the early church. They're reminding themselves, however bad the situation may look, or however bad the situation is about to become for them, which it is, God's not caught off guard. Jesus knows what he's doing with his church. From our perspective, we may never understand what why such opposition? Why do our brothers and sisters in the Middle East have to go through such horrendous ordeals for following Jesus? We may not see why, but from God's perspective, everything's going to plan. And the way that we can trust him in his sovereignty is by doing what they do here, praying back truths about him to him. Prayer on God's sovereignty, sustained by the truth of the Bible, that is how the church responds 
to this potential crisis. And then it's, it's remarkable what they ask for in verse 29. They don't ask the sovereign God to put an end to this opposition, nor do they ask even for protection. Rather, they request simply that God would give them the boldness to continue to proclaim his word, and he would continue to accredit that word with miraculous signs and wonders. Lord, give us the boldness to speak. They pray for boldness. And then in verse 31, the building shakes. All of them, notice, not just the apostles now, all of them are filled with the Holy Spirit. And all of them go out and boldly proclaim the word of God. Prayer is the key here. Prayer is the means by which we can unearth the resources that God has given us to speak boldly for him. No matter who you are, that's what they needed in Luke's time. And that is what we still need today. If we are to get in line with the mission of the church that we're seeing in the book of Acts, that we have to be willing to speak to others about God and to speak to God about others. This is something just, just going into this week, we, we could do this very practically. Why not pray for opportunities to talk about Jesus? And when those opportunities come, why not pray for boldness to take those opportunities and then speak about him, speak about Jesus. There's no other name by which people can be saved. And we know that from this passage we're seeing that kind of chat could spark opposition, but we also know from what we've just seen who's ultimately in control here. There's something really important about these final verses that we shouldn't miss. Do you notice the corporate element of everything that's been written here. We must not be under the illusion that doing evangelism and that talking about Jesus is something we do by ourselves. We have to pray together for each other. We have to pray together for us as a church here at Chalmers. Praying with our brothers and sisters in Christ will cause us to know God better, will cause us to lean on God's sovereignty more, and that in turn will give us the boldness to speak for him in whatever area of life God puts us in. You cannot be an effective witness for Jesus by yourself. The church, that is God's mission plan. That is God's means by which he empowers and sustains and helps his people through difficult times, through opposition. When we face, not, not if, but when we face opposition as individuals or as a church, for the sake of Jesus' name, our first port of call should be to pray as well. And to pray for more opportunities to share this gospel. The church here in Acts is, is united in one voice before the one God with one mission to boldly proclaim Jesus. This is a work that we must do together. together. That's why our, our small groups and our midweek prayer meetings are so important to our life here as a church. So important. It's hard to talk about the gospel. I really struggle with it. I think I'm probably the worst evangelist I know. But God has not left us alone. We have his spirit in us. We have his people around us. And we use the resources that he has given us so that we can get in line with the mission of the church we see in the book of Acts. And do you know the encouraging thing about Acts when we study this? We know it's true. We know that the gospel does progress 
despite opposition. There's a lot more extreme opposition to come in this book. But does the gospel progress to the ends of the earth? Well, all you have to do is just look around you right now, 2,000 years later, thousands of miles away from Jerusalem. And here we are. It's the same gospel, same Jesus. It's the same spirit that has given the boldness to speak. This gospel will go out and opposition will not hinder it. Let me just close with a wee story to encourage us. I'm a, a bit of a church history geek, um, and I was reading this story, um, and it was, it was great. Um, there was a minister in Edinburgh in the late 1800s called Alexander White, and he used to tell the story of a man who went to his congregation called Rigby, Now, Rigby was a commercial traveler who, when he was in Edinburgh, he used to stay down at the Waverley Hotel and go to Alexander White's church. He he was quite a a shy, um, he was known for being quite a shy, quite a timid guy who didn't really talk much to people. But before he left the hotel one morning, he saw a young gentleman sitting in the lobby and he asked him, do you want to come to church with me? And at first the guy kind of refused and said, no, it's not really for me. Um, but then as, as he was walking out, as Rigby was leaving, the gentleman decided, well, actually, I'll just give it a shot and come along. And as he, the two of them went to Dr. White's church, this young man ended up becoming converted. He became a follower of Jesus uh, from attending that service. And Rigby was so happy about this and so excited that he went to Dr. White's house the following day to tell him um, that this guy had been converted. And as they were chatting, um, the man, uh, Dr. White, asked Rigby what his name was. Uh, He said, my name's Rigby. And Dr. White responded by saying, you are the man that I have been waiting to see for so long. And then he pulled out about a dozen letters that various people had written to him, in which they were all basically saying the same thing. They were sitting in a hotel lobby when this shy, quiet guy came up to them and asked them to come along to church. A dozen letters, four of them were written from ministers, and they'd all been converted through that. You see, even the most timid, the most shy, the most quiet person can be used by God's Spirit to do extraordinary things. Because the power to proclaim the gospel is not in how articulate we are or how intelligent we are or how eloquent we put things across. It's simply God's Holy Spirit. And he can use anyone to do that. We all have that. This gospel will progress. Brothers and sisters, God has not given us his spirit so that we could remain silent. He's given us his spirit so that we could proclaim Whatever opposition may come, this gospel will grow and will continue to the ends of the earth. Let's pray together. Father, thank you um, that there is nothing that can stop the progression of your gospel, of your word. Lord, we've seen evidence of it in history and in countries that were so hostile to you and how the gospel has flourished there and how the church has been... Uh, growing, Lord. Father, have mercy for when we fail to, to be bold and to step out and to talk about Jesus. Lord, help us to understand who Jesus is and who you are so that we can know the importance of sharing him with others. Father, help us to be bold. Lord, collectively today, we as your people pray and we ask you
that you would give us all here boldness this week to talk about Jesus, to be unashamed of the gospel because we know it is the power of salvation. Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.